welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast. My name is Philip and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 42, Seneca's Phaedra, Mother Lust. Last time, we journeyed to the dark world of Medea, as reimagined by Seneca. With its dramatic ending that incorporated the deus ex machina and the darkest of revenges, it felt connected to the Greek original. Both plays are dominated by the evil of the central character, although, as I discussed, giving quite a different spin on her motivations and actions within that framework. Now we move on to another reimagined Greek world in Phaedra. This is a retelling of the Hippolytus myth, which we didn't encounter in detail when we looked at the plays of Euripides in season one. Although there's little doubt that Seneca used Euripides as his model for this tale, he also made several poignant changes, and there's a complication. The Euripides version of the story of Hippolytus was presented at the city Dionysia in 428 BCE and won first prize as part of a trilogy in the usual way. But Euripides had already used the myth in an earlier play. This version is referred to as Hippolytus Veiled and it's now lost, but comments about it and fragments that survive suggest that Phaedra's lustful behaviour towards Hippolytus was portrayed in a particularly shameless and brazen way and the audience were very offended. You will remember that of the three great Athenian tragedians, Euripides was the one who seems to have worked hardest to push the boundaries of what was acceptable on the Athenian stage. It was he who gave very different versions of the relationship between gods and men in several of his plays, and the extraordinary vision of the Bacchae. For his original play, the implication is that on this occasion he went too far. However, he wasn't deterred and returned to the subject in a later version, perhaps with the explicit intention of rectifying the earlier piece. On this occasion, it was obviously much better received. The complication is that we can't be sure if Seneca based his version on the play that we still have, or the lost version. In Seneca's day, it was probably still available, or large sections of it were, and his vision does differ quite a lot from the surviving version by Euripides. If that is the case, then it's suggested that Phaedra's very personal confession about her lust for Hippolytus was the passage that was deemed so offensive to the ancient Athenians, but which Seneca then retained. In the later Euripides version, Phaedra's feelings are reported to Theseus by the nurse, which, it is suggested, made them more palatable to the audience and made her character less problematic for Athenians. But if you don't know the myth at all, then we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. Here's a summary of the play. In Seneca's version, the action opens with Hippolytus departing the palace to hunt boar, praying to Diana for success. It's a long verse of eighty or so lines in praise of the land and the sport of hunting, and as with the opening of Medea, shows Seneca's skill at writing lyrically about the land and giving what we would now think of as a very cinematic viewpoint. It serves to emphasise the extent and diversity of Roman lands, giving a sweeping view of the changing landscape and the bounty it provides. Phaedra then appears, regretting the long absence of her husband, who went to retrieve Persephone from Hades. She tells how for a long time she has been left alone to run the palace, and then she adds, But still a greater pain extends my sorrow. I can't sleep, no deep slumber at night refreshes me from this anguish. My sickness only finds nourishment, growing stronger, burning inside me like the searing heat that spews forth from Etna's gaping mouth. She says she can no more attend to the household than go to the temple. Inexplicably, she finds herself longing for the forest and to be on the hunt. She has a sense of foreboding and wonders if she, like her mother, is cursed. 
As she says, adultery in the forest is a kind of love that my family know well. She recalls how her mother, who was put under a spell and fell in love with a bull, gave birth to the Minotaur as a result. The speech is full of references to the myths and the relationship of the various gods, again suggesting that the audience were expected to have a detailed knowledge of these stories and what the complex relationships between the gods meant. Her thoughts are interrupted by her old nurse, who urges her to control her destructive passions. She says, Do not give in to this crazed desire. Whoever puts up a fight and drives love away at the start leaves the battlefield safe and victorious. But whatever nourishes this evil, sweet though it may be, by fanning the flames, well, it's too late to deny the yoke once you have put it on. I am quite aware that royal pride, all puffed up and unbending, and unaccustomed to hearing truth, fights back when asked to follow a reasonable course of action. These last lines about speaking truth to power seem particularly heartfelt coming from Seneca, already versed in the delicate dance that was needed around those with absolute power. The nurse also gives some more general philosophy in her speech, saying, Moral failings are worse than monsters. You can blame fate for the latter, but the former comes from character. Phaedra confesses that she lusts after Hippolytus and is fearful that this passion is destroying her reason. She says her whole mind is dominated by thoughts of love and uncontrolled passion, but she knows that Hippolytus keeps his distance from women, even dislikes them, and has no feelings for her. She resolves to commit suicide to avoid inevitable shame and end her suffering, but the nurse dissuades her by promising that she can help. She says, It is my task to approach the wild young man and change his unfeeling ways. A lengthy choral song speaks of the power of love, and then the chorus opens Act 2 by asking the nurse for news of the Queen. She can only report that her passion for Hippolytus still rages and is driving her out of her mind. From the balcony above, Phaedra divests herself of her royal clothes and jewellery, wishing only for the freedom that simple clothes will give her to run through the forest, javelin in hand. The balcony doors close as the nurse prays to Diana that Hippolytus can be made to fall in love with her mistress. Returning from the hunt, Hippolytus asks why the nurse is looking so sad. She assures him that her only concern is for his well-being and advises him to get more enjoyment from life to take the opportunities that it offers and particularly to try being kinder to women. He says he prefers the innocent freedom of being in the forest and living the life of his ancestors, before arguments amongst men made fighting and then war the norm. He says that he finds women wicked and even specifically says stepmothers are inhumane. But the generals of wickedness are women. These designers of crimes lay siege to our mind and it is because of these creatures' unfaithfulnesses that so many cities lie smouldering in ashes, so many nations feel the pain of war, so many nations lie crushed beneath the ruins of their mighty kingdoms. I'll call out only Aegeus' wife Medea. By herself she proves womankind a vile bunch. The nurse tries to argue that love can change people, but he will have none of it. Phaedra arrives and immediately faints in front of Hippolytus. He is concerned and, when she recovers, he tries to find out what her problem is. She decides to confess her feelings and suggests that he should take his father's place as he is never likely to return from his travels. Taking this to mean caring for her and her children, but confident of his father's return, Hippolytus agrees. She then declares her love for him openly and he is shocked and repulsed. She literally throws herself at him, but he cannot stand her touch and asks her to remove her impure hands from his body. 
he draws his sword and drags her to Diana's altar to kill her. But when she declares that dying in his arms with her virtue intact is all that she desires, he throws down his sword and runs to the forest, unwilling to fulfil her request by his own hand. The nurse sees that Phaedra's secret is now out in the open, and that Hippolytus will tell his father of what has happened as soon as he returns. So they plot to accuse Hippolytus of incest. One wrong, she says, must be concealed by another. She calls on the people of Athens to help her, and arranges for Phaedra to be left in her dishevelled state to support the accusation against Hippolytus. Another long choral ode praises Hippolytus and condemns Phaedra for her wicked deception. Theseus enters, newly returned from his travels to the underworld. He's concerned by the lamentations he can hear from the palace. It's not the homecoming welcome that he was expecting. The nurse tells him that Phaedra has resolved to die because she is grief-stricken but will not explain why. Theseus goes to the palace and finds Phaedra with sword in hand ready to kill herself. He tries to question her but she only responds with vague statements about a sin she has committed and that it's right for her to die. He orders the nurse to be tortured until she reveals what is going on. And to save her nurse this, Phaedra tells him that she has been raped and accuses Hippolytus by pointing to his sword. Enraged, Theseus summons Neptune to kill Hippolytus. Thanks to a past encounter, the god owes him a favour, so he knows his call will be answered. The choral song speaks of how the gods don't care for justice. The world order, they say, has become skewed, and they ask why it is the innocent who are punished and not the guilty. They say, What undeserved rewards crown a life of purity and virtue? Cruel poverty weighs down the chaste. Adultery is repaid with wealth. Innocence, how worthless. Honour, how meaningless. A messenger enters and tells Theseus that Hippolytus is dead. In a graphic description, he tells how a monstrous bull appeared from the sea and frightened the horses pulling Hippolytus's chariot. His body became caught in the reins and he was torn apart as he was dragged. The messenger, once in his stride, doesn't hold back. He left a long trail of blood over the land as his head struck and bounced off rocks. Thorns tore his flowing hair and his beautiful features were pierced by harsh rock. His doomed beauty vanished beneath many a cut. His dying limbs were broken as the racing wheels rolled over them again and again. Finally, he was trapped, caught on a tree stump that had been burned into a sharp pole. The point drove right through his groin. With that wound, his pair of horses shuddered to a stop, but only for a second, as they tore free, they also tore their master. Every thicket, every bramble patch with its sharp thorns cut the flesh of your son, now only half alive, as every patch of vegetation took part of his body. Theseus is distraught, but the messenger points out that he cannot reasonably lament the thing that he asked for. The chorus close Act 4 with a song that reflects on the terrible trials that great men have to face. Alone with his wife and the body of his son, Theseus cannot stand Phaedra's emotional lamentations and she condemns him for his harsh judgments made in the heat of the moment. Still consumed with love for Hippolytus, she confesses to her deception about him and falls on her sword. Theseus gives a long lamentation over the body of his son as he attempts to place his broken body parts back in the right position to make a complete corpse. Only partially successful, he orders a proper royal burial for Hippolytus, but for Phaedra his command is this. As for this woman, dig a grave and cover her body with earth. May the soil weigh heavily on her wicked soul. And with that the play ends.
To return to the comparison to the Euripides version, the biggest change is that he presented Phaedra as innocent, even chaste, but manipulated by the gods and suffering because of their whims. Seneca's heroine, or maybe it should be anti-heroine, is very different. She is self-aware of her situation, knowing that her feelings are improper and amoral at least, but still she follows her passions. She's much more active than the Euripides version, so she tells Hippolytus of her feelings for him herself, something that fell to the nurse in the earlier version. Because of this, and her own obvious intelligence, Phaedra has responsibility for her actions. There are no witches' spells here, or influence from the gods, but a woman who can't control her passions. A more subtle difference is that for Euripides, the emphasis was on the need for Phaedra to avoid shame, so she kills herself as soon as Hippolytus rejects her advances, and her accusations of rape are contained in her suicide note. Seneca lets her live to hear of Hippolytus's death and express her remorse at it. It's suggested that this reflects a cultural difference between Greeks and Romans. For Romans, the concept of guilt and therefore the need for repentance was much stronger than the concept of shame, which remained very much an ancient Greek ideal. The idea of Phaedra as the bad stepmother is also prominent in the play. This tapped into a common Roman trope and is another addition to Euripides, where the relationship is not overtly mentioned. By contrast, Seneca references the relationship at four moments of extreme tension in the play. He knew that this concept had a hold on the Roman imagination and uses it as a key to heighten the tension further for the Roman audience. Roman culture had an obsession with wicked stepmothers who were seen as prone to amorality towards their acquired children and even sexual predation. There was a commonly held view that the role led to a destructive urge in women and a lack of control in relation to their stepchildren. I've not been able to find anything that suggests this was based on a genuine social issue but given the dangers of childbirth, there would have been a lot of stepmothers around, and some of them had, no doubt, mixed feelings towards their inherited children and treated them badly in different ways. At least for Seneca, he shows some sympathy towards Phaedra by presenting something of her inner struggle during the conversations with the nurse. She's not the caricature of the completely heartless and scheming stepmother trope. The nature of her feelings for Hippolytus puts this at a much more base and basic level. For this play, knowledge of the myth is important. Phaedra refers to her own mother's sorry tale that involved a spell-induced coupling with a bull and the birth of the Minotaur. That history is echoed in the bull rising out of the sea causing the death of Hippolytus. She draws a direct line from her mother's unnatural feelings for the bull to her transgressions, suggesting that she is cursed from birth by her mother's actions. But Seneca doesn't allow her that way out. As the nurse points out, she is aware of her course and able to change it, whereas her mother was under a spell and not in control of her passions. By committing suicide, she shows that she does still have that freedom, but by then, of course, she's narrowed down her options considerably. To Roman sensibilities, suicide retains some sense of honour, which, maybe, makes her a slightly less lost soul than Medea, who manages through supernatural events to flee the scene of her crimes and avoid any sort of honourable solution. Stoics held that the laws of nature and the application of reason should always govern human behaviour. By consciously pursuing her unnatural lust for her stepson, Phaedra has seriously breached the boundaries of natural law and in the Stoic mindset only her death can right the balance. In that context, her death is an inevitability, which is not directed by fickle gods but by natural law. 
Although not representative of the Stoic ideals, Hippolytus is also ultimately governed by the same natural laws. Once tainted by Phaedra's lust, he wants to escape from society, which he believes has lost its moral compass. However, he's already started down a morally ambiguous path by trying to remove himself from society and live the simple life of his ancestors. There's no approval here from Seneca. The Stoics believed that they should be engaged in society, and Seneca proved that point with a vengeance in his own life choices. But we also see the struggle in him as he attempted to live a quieter, completative life outside of the court. So his portrait of Hippolytus is quite neutral, being neither sympathetic nor a condemnation. The role of Hippolytus as first as the hunter and then the hunted has also been noted by some commentators. The language of the hunt pervades the play, especially in the early scenes. Later, Phaedra refers to Hippolytus as a young beast of the forest and says how ferocious he is. She casts herself as the hunter, ready to throw the thin javelin into the startled animals. It is to Diana's altar that she is dragged when Hippolytus thinks of killing her. Diana was of course the Roman version of Artemis, goddess of the hunt. In the same way, Greek Poseidon is replaced with Roman Neptune when Theseus calls on assistance from the god of the sea. With the final scene where Theseus tries to rebuild the shattered body of his son, the hunt has turned sour. His body is so badly broken that Theseus cannot even place his body parts in the right place with any certainty. The picture of Theseus as a man broken by the death of his son, effectively by his own hand, and by the betrayal of his wife, is a grim and sombre ending. In its structure and tone, Phaedra is a similar play to Medea and Seneca's other works. The play is a series of long, overlong speeches, divided by choral odes and short passages of quick dialogue. Once again, the language is overpowering at times, and the dramatic impact lost in the long descriptive passages and the retelling of the underlying myths. But I think it does work a bit better than Medea as a play. There's just a little bit more dramatic action, and Phaedra is a small step closer to a real character than Medea is. There is a more meaningful debate between the mistress and the nurse than there is in Medea, and through that and the more self-aware character of Phaedra, there's something just slightly more believable. The sombre ending, with no reliance on a deus ex machina, also helps here. But let's be clear, this is still overblown and histrionic stuff, with little sense of realism, explicable motivations or character development. To our eyes and ears, this would work better if toned down and with many more subtleties inserted. But of course, this wasn't written for us, and, as I mentioned before, if it were not for plays like this, then the subsequent European theatre would have looked quite a bit different from what we actually have. Phaedra as a play had an afterlife. As you know, we're not sure that Seneca was ever performed publicly in his lifetime, or for a long while after that. The first confirmed performance of the play was in 1486. Renamed Hippolytus, it was performed in the Forum in Rome, an event that was organised by the humanist Guilio Pomponia Leto. He was the founder of the Academia Romana, an institution dedicated to the study of antiquity. If you have a good memory, you might recognise that date. 1486 was the year that the Monachmus Brothers by Plautus was produced by the Duke of Ferreira. Leto made some adaptations to Phaedra to please the tastes of his day and his sponsor, Cardinal Riario. The production was in Latin and clearly it was a success, so much so, and perhaps surprisingly given the subject matter, that Pope Innocent VII requested a performance at his summer residence, which was duly given. And so we come to the end of Seneca. 
His theatrical legacy is perhaps much greater than we might expect, given his plays were probably not performed in his own time in other than private and read situations. If we agree, as is likely, that the last two plays traditionally attributed to him are in fact written by admirers a generation later, then it suggests that he had some form of popularity soon after his death. That popularity might well have been driven by the standard of his poetry rather than his drama. He followed very much in the footsteps of Horace, Virgil and Ovid, writing mostly in a smooth iambic trimeter, the most popular poetic form for the Roman playwrights. As I hope I have shown, the power of Seneca's tragedies is in the power of his language rather than dramatic action. Plot and characters are not forgotten, but words and the arguments that they can convey were his strength. Unfortunately, the general consensus is that he did not get that balance quite right, and perhaps in that respect he was a victim of his time. It's been postulated that all his plays were probably written by a young Seneca after his exile in Corsica when he was tutor and then advisor to Nero. Nero was an emperor noted for his love of the theatre, a trait that was often held against him, and was said to like performing in plays himself. It's recorded in ancient sources that his tastes started with comedy but developed towards tragedy. So it's suggested, therefore, that Seneca may have written his plays for Nero, not just for Nero to watch, but to perform it. Could a need to write to the emperor's extreme tastes explain why they're so verbose and histrionic? This is little more than pure speculation, but nevertheless an intriguing possibility. But let's leave Seneca on a more certain idea, that it was when the Renaissance dramatists combined his style of intense language with characterisation based on humanism and a fledgling grasp of psychology that we get an explosion of dramatic art that is arguably the best ever created. Seneca definitely deserves our thanks for his contribution to that. Next time we go on to lighter things and get close to the end of the season on the Theatre of Rome. There is one form of Roman drama that's only been mentioned in passing so far, and now it is time to turn the spotlight on rustic farce, mime and pantomime. At least I can guarantee that the subject matter will be a great deal more light-hearted than what we've been enduring for the last three episodes. So do join me next time for the lighter side of Roman theatre. I look forward to your company then. Don't forget that all episodes are posted to the YouTube channel if that is an easier place for you to listen from, and you should be able to find us on all good podcast apps. If you'd like to support the podcast, please find us at patreon.com or go to ko-fi.com just to leave a tip to say thanks. If you have a spare moment, please take a couple of minutes to rate the podcast and write a review on Apple Podcasts. As we near the end of Season 2, it would be great to have a few more reviews up there to help other interested folk find us. Any and all support helps offset the costs of running the podcast and is gratefully received. Thank you so much for your support, and if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. (laughs) 